song, I say, oh, this is Kyle and Travis with Korean Adoptee Stories for our Real Adoptee Weekly Talk. I'm really excited to introduce uh, Peggy Galmaldez, which I'm pretty sure I mispronounced, but she could probably tell us how to pronounce it when she introduced herself. So I'm really excited to talk to these Korean adoptees. And I'm glad they're, they want to talk to us. And I think they have a lot to say. And I think the more people we get talking, the more we can learn from and, and connect with a whole bunch of Korean adoptees. So uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Peggy. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you guys for connecting with me and having me on your show today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Do you mind introducing yourself? Uh, could you tell us your name, where you live, and, and we can talk a little bit more about your childhood probably after that? Sure. Yeah, no problem. So hi, everybody. My name is Peggy Galdames. Uh, my last name is actually my husband's name, and he's from El Salvador, so it's a Hispanic last name. Um, I am a Korean adoptee, and my family and I moved during the COVID times in uh, July from the Bay Area of California over now to Florida, and we're about an hour south of Tampa, so from one bay to another bay, and um, uh, yeah, I have two kids, <laughs> and i um, very happy to be connecting with you guys today. I think it's actually kind of interesting. It sounds like you actually moved from California to uh, Florida to be with your adoptive parents. It sounds like you actually have a pretty good relationship with them. So, yes, uh, my mother lives here in Sarasota, Florida, and which is about a half an hour from where we live. Um, actually, my family's from Michigan, and so um, I moved away from that state quite a number of years ago, but my mom still has a home there, and then she snowbirds down here. And, yes, uh, that has been a very uh, good relationship as well as a very challenging relationship which i'm very happy to talk more about uh, my parents are divorced and uh, my mother and my stepfather live here in florida and my father and stepmother live in arizona when did your parents uh divorce they divorced when i was quite young uh when i was two years old oh so that was pretty young then huh yes yes do you have a pretty good relationship uh with uh, your adoptive father so I would say it's a good relationship, but it's also a bit of a complicated relationship. Um, it's one that I've had to really make the decision that if I wanted to have a relationship with my father, I would need to really kind of accept that he is the man who he is. And there's not going to be a whole lot of growth and change on his part that I personally would have loved to have seen. And so um for me, I think the biggest reason why I really work to maintain a relationship, particularly with my father um, and my stepmother, is for the sake of my two daughters so that they can have a relationship with their grandparents because I know how much that they love and care for them. And I felt like when I became a mother, that was really something that became important to me. But prior to that, we had... Uh, I would say more of a strained relationship. Could you explain a little bit about the strain and why it was strained? So um, when my parents divorced, I was quite young and my mother had custody of us. And so actually I should also share my, I have an older adopted brother from Korea as well. And he's three years older than me. Um, so we ended up living with my mother I assume you guys aren't related, correct? 
That is correct. Yeah, he was adopted first, and then I was adopted three years later. So when my parents divorced, my mother had custody of us. So single mother, two kids. Um, I do imagine it was very hard for her to provide. Um, she worked a couple jobs, and um, she really did the best she could. And I, I really only have... Um, I have a lot of positive memories of doing things with my mother and my brother. However, when I was eight years old, uh, she had a really bad accident and ended up tearing a whole bunch of ligaments in her ankle and leg and was on crutches. And here she had an eight-year-old and an 11-year-old. And um, for whatever reasons, she felt that she could not take care of us. Uh, fully by herself. And I believe she asked for help from her own mother, my grandmother, who told her that she wasn't able to do that, which I find just unbelievable because as a mother, if, you know, my daughters asked me for help, I would be there in a heartbeat to help them. So uh, she ended up giving up custody of us, full custody to my father and my stepmother when I was eight. And that forever kind of changed like the trajectory of my life, I feel like. Um, my father really was not a super involved dad. And my stepmother tried to take on the role of being our mother. But it was just like so challenging from that moment that we went to live with them. And I stayed with them all the way through my, I mean, technically it was my junior year in high school. But our relationship had always been it had been okay. I mean, it was okay. There were times it was good, but a lot of it, it was very strained. And so once I became an adult, it was kind of like, now it's my time and I don't have to put up with all the crap and nonsense that I had to put up with growing up as a kid. And I make my own decisions now and I'm off to, to see the world. And, um, it just kind of like, signified my independence. And I really decided at that point, I didn't have to really have much of a strong relationship with them anymore um, when I left. And so my senior year of high school, um, I decided to move back to my mom and go live with her. And so I completed my senior year of high school and my college uh, living with my mother. And that was really, my father and stepmother saw that as a kind of a slap in the face, like I was rejecting them because I chose not to finish out my high school with them. And I chose not to stay around for college. And it just, it was kind of like a, a really dark period uh, for all of us not to want to connect with each other anymore. What was the tension that resulted in the relationship with your stepmom and your father? Was there issues with abuse or maybe yelling or control, maybe emotional or so I remember when I, we first moved in with my dad and stepmom, and one of the first questions that they asked us, they sat us down on the couch, and I'll never forget it. My stepmom looked so pleased with herself, like she was getting ready to open up a present, you know, like a, a birthday present or a Christmas present. And my dad had a very, you know, hopeful, serious look on his face. And he said to us, now that you're living with us, we would like to ask you a very important question. And would you be okay to call Marion your mother? And I could just feel her anxious, like happy expectation. Like we were just going to be like, yes, no problem. Of course, we're just going to be these compliant children who've 
just joined this family and now we're one big happy family. And I was shocked because I had a mother and I did not want to call somebody else my mother who was not my mother. My brother and my stepmother, like, I feel like instantly hated each other. So your brother got less along with the, the stepmom, it sounds like, than you then, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to, I wanted my best to make everybody happy. I wanted to be the good girl because my brother was so, he had his own issues that he was so upset about the divorce. He was so upset about having to move in with my dad and my stepmom, a woman that he, he, he's never, never, never connected with her. He's never liked her from day one. And I didn't want to create more problems, but at the same time, this wasn't my mother and I was not going to call her my mother. And I, and I told her, I, I told them, I said, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not, I don't want to. And it was almost like at that moment, I had just crushed something in her. I could just feel it. And my, my father was so disappointed in us and she tried to fill a maternal role, but she, and you know what? I know that they thought they were doing the right thing with the things that they did for us. But in so many ways, it was so damaging. You know, they are very, very uber religious people. And up until that point, I mean, my mom took us to church, but we didn't have to change our entire lifestyle based on her religious beliefs. Whereas with my father and my stepmother, all of a sudden, we had to be these like perfect Christian children and everything was controlled. What we ate what we watched, what we read, what music we listened to, how we behaved. I mean, there was like not a moment that I felt like I wasn't being judged, criticized, or watched about my behavior. And that was not, you know, was it okay or was it not okay? And I learned very quickly that if I didn't do what was expected of me, I was going to be like in trouble or I was going to be given all kinds of you know, just judgment. And I hated feeling like I was doing something wrong. I hated feeling like, so, you know, I wanted to conform and be the best daughter, best Christian, you know, but it was, it was, it was exhausting because I constantly was looking around like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And that in itself was hard enough to deal with for me personally, because I didn't know any better. Like I literally, I was told this story that I was going to go to hell. Like basically like my soul was going to be like not saved if I did not comply and be this good Christian girl. Now, when you're eight years old, of course, you're going to believe that. Of course, you're going to think I am a terrible person and I need to like hop to it and be the best Bible reading, scripture reciting, doing all the things and later when I became a teenager, I got, I got really angry and I started questioning why, why is my life constantly being judged, criticized and under the microscope? Like I am a good person. I don't kill people. I don't steal. I don't lie. You know, why do I feel like I'm constantly being judged for who I am? And I hated that. And then the other really hard parts were my stepmother, again, she probably thought she was doing the right thing for the, the tools that she had as being a mother figure. And I, I, she badly wanted to replace my mother. Um, but 
he would treat me so awfully like my mother would call me um this is you know before we had cell phones and you could text message and of course I didn't have a phone and she would call me because she'd want to talk to me and I remember I would have good conversations with my mother telling her about how I was doing I was only allowed to see her uh, on the summer during the summertime because she was a teacher and I had summers off and I was allowed to see her on some of the holidays, but not every holiday. So of course, when she called me, she really wanted to hear about how my life was. And after I would hang up, my stepmother would give me the silent treat. She wouldn't talk to me. She would make me, I would have to like beg for her to connect back with me. I would have to like try to, you know, be so extra nice to her. And I'd do things to, to try to get back in her good graces. Like I had done something horribly wrong just because I talked to my mother. There seems to be issues with like personal jealousy. It sounds like versus like, I don't know. I I guess I get a a picture that if, if I was someone that really liked someone and I want them to like me, I would assume that I would be jealous if there was someone else involved. I I wanted to ask you about that too. Uh, How old were you when they actually asked you about, having your stepmom be your, your mother you're eight i was eight yeah that's a really young age to even kind of make that decision how long did you know this person before they actually uh sat you down and asked you about this i remember my i think my father met her when i was four and i think they got because i i remember i was pretty young and i think i feel like they got married when i was like five and i remember at their wedding as soon as the wedding ceremony was over, I ran down to the, I ran down the middle of the aisle. I found the coat room and I cried my eyes out because I wasn't happy and I didn't want to be there. And I just, I wanted to be back with my mom. Um, so I had known her for a while, you know, and I know, I know she wanted to, to show my father what an excellent mother she could be. And, but she wanted, like you just said, Travis, she was extremely jealous. She wanted to replace my mother she wanted to to basically wipe out my mother's existence. I mean, we had this epic, epic argument. I remember one time where I finally said, you just don't want me to love my mother. You just don't want me to have a connection with my mother. And she said, yes, I don't. And I, it like, the truth of it just hurt me so badly because this was the woman that was supposed to really take care of me and and was supposed to help me and, and guide me through the difficulties of life. And, and I didn't feel like I really got that. I got a lot of, this is how you're supposed to behave um, as a good Christian girl. And um, when I was 11, my parents decided to adopt my half-brother from Brazil. And it was from the moment he came into our lives, and I don't hold this against him whatsoever, But the moment he came into our lives, my brother and I became second class citizens in our family. Like we, we were not first priority anymore. We, my brother had already not been first priority, but I really became like, we both became super backseat. So anything that my brother, his needs, it always came first. She, she would make such a big deal when he would call her mommy. You know, and I understood why, but it was very hurtful how she would make it very poignant in our face. Like, look, you are the, you are not my, my real children, you know? And I, I understood that. Um, They did a lot of things to ensure that my younger brother 
you know, really just came first in so many ways. And my brother and I got the message loud and clear. You know, we were not my father's priority. We were not my stepmother's priority. And we still live with them, but we didn't really have any other like emotional support there. Um, And it was hard because while I felt like I had parents and of course, oh, they say, oh yeah, we love you. We're proud of you. I didn't feel like I had the emotional support and I definitely did not feel like I could trust. I could not trust my stepmother I learned very quickly I could not trust her. Um, I used to write in a diary when I was very little. I liked to write and I would write about my feelings and missing my mom and I would cry and and um, she confronted me about what I had written. And I said, did you read my, my diary? And she said, well, yes, I did. Of course I did. I need to know what's going on. And in that moment, as again, as an eight-year-old child, I knew I can't trust this woman. You know, she's, she's not somebody that's going to emotionally support me. Um, I didn't feel like my dad either, even if he wanted to, I didn't feel like he could ever stand up to her or he could protect me or support me only twice in my life. He's ever stood up for me. And that was, I'm sure he paid the price for it too i guess my biggest question is is uh so your mom permanently became disabled is that why she couldn't provide for you is that why you switched or so she was not permanently disabled but because of her injury um and when she gave up full custody of us legally we were no longer hers so she couldn't she went to court and fought many times but my father would he was like nope nope he wouldn't do it. So it wasn't until, you know, I turned, even though I wasn't technically, I wasn't an adult yet. I wasn't 18 at 17. I decided and I, um, they had sent us to a boarding school and I told uh, all the teachers at the boarding school, the administration, I'm not coming back next year. I'm going to move and go live with my mother. I told every single person, except for my dad and my stepmom. they thought I was going back there. So, um, that was my decision to finally be reunited with my mother um, at 17 years old. I guess what's kind of confusing to me is, so your dad was fighting custody when your mom got injured. Is that why, or? No, my mom was, when she gave up custody, she realized like the gravity of her mistake and she tried to reverse it later. She tried to fight for our custody back. Right. But it wasn't possible. Mm, you know the courts ruled in my father's favor i think on the positive end thinking about it even though your parents did adopt you and they are your adoptive parents i think it's actually kind of good that you actually felt like there you did have a connection and you actually wanted to call your your mom in florida actually your mom so it sounded like you even if you were distant it you felt like there was a pretty good connection there it seems like absolutely my mother has always treated me with love and care. Like I never felt ever, ever like abused in any way, shape or form by her, not emotionally, not physically. I mean, she just, she just gave me love and trust and compassion. And she wanted to mother me in a way that I feel like a mother should besides giving you love. 
getting to know you as a person. Who are you? What do you like? What do you, what can I learn about you? And, oh, you're interested in those things. Well, let's do that. And also let me introduce you to these things too. I mean, she definitely tried to like connect my brother and I to Holt. My brother was adopted through Holt. I was not. She tried to, you know, um, introduce us to like the Holt activities with families. And she took us, we lived across from a Korean restaurant. That was my first introduction to Korean food. And what was this in Michigan or was this in Florida you're talking about? We were in Michigan when I uh, was adopted. So I came to Michigan. But then when my parents divorced, we moved to Illinois. Um, So my mom really wanted us to be connected to our cultural roots. Like she tried to introduce us. Like I remember she took us to this Korean, I think it was like a Korean Methodist church or something a couple of times. And we were like, oh, mom. Like all these like Korean ladies were coming up to us and talking to us and giving my brother Coke and <laughs> all this like attention. And I didn't know what to do because we didn't speak Korean. And but, you know, she she made an effort. Right. She wanted us to know about our culture. She didn't try to like brush it aside and was like, oh, you're American now. You're only going to do American things. You know, she respected us as individuals and she treated us like that. I didn't realize this until, I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago, how angry I was at my mom, though, for giving us up. That's what I was wondering, the the mom in Florida, correct? Yes. That's why I was wondering if there, you had any resentment, even though there's a connection. I was wondering if you actually had resentment for her letting you guys kind of go and living with a household that, that you didn't like that much. That's exactly it. I I love my mother and I... I always feel like she's the woman that will always look out for me. I can trust her. She respects me. She wants to be like a part of my life in a very positive way. But when she gave us up, there was something inside of me that obviously translated that into a second form of rejection and abandonment. And so I internalized, not realizing I had done it. I was so angry at her and I, it would come out in like, really, really snarky ways. You know, I'd get super impatient with her or I would just be like, God, mom, like that's not even, you know, I would, I was very demeaning to her at times and I would put her down and, and, and like a couple of my friends and even my husband, he's like, why are you so impatient with your mom all the time? What your mom loves you. Like, why are you so, sometimes you're kind of mean. And then it was really weird. One day I was vacuuming the house. It was like three years ago and it just like hit me. I don't know. I can't even explain it. It was like somebody came along and slapped me on the forehead and they were like, you're so angry at your mother. You're so angry at her for giving you up to your dad and your stepmom and not fighting harder and not trying to, to keep me and and raise me. And I'm angry at that. It felt like abandonment, even though I understand medically, like she didn't think she could handle it, but it felt like abandonment. And that's what a child interprets, you know? And it was like all these years that I had lived, it made sense all of a sudden why I had been so hard on my mom because I was so angry at her still. Have you ever had a personal confrontation when it came to this issue or it's still something that you keep private to yourself or you're not sure how it would go? I find it interesting as well that it's all these emotions seem to be like uh, spurring up like like recently, not in your childhood. You're saying you didn't have like a emotional outburst back then when you were younger, but actually now 
kind of the emotions are coming out, it sounds like. Yeah. And that's what is so interesting to me too, because, you know, as a little girl, all I wanted was my mom. I just wanted to go back to my mom, but I couldn't, you know, she was my safe mother figure. And then when I became a teenager, I really started missing my mother. And so I started to question all these aspects of my life. I really had a hard time at home with my dad and my stepmom. We fought a lot. They sent me to boarding school. Did they do that to exert discipline or was it more for studies? I think they felt like it was the best decision to do because of the direction they thought I might go in the city, in the little town that we were living in. Um, a lot of girls were just getting pregnant. A lot of girls were, you know, just getting out, partying and drinking. Holy cow. So this was kind of the, the environment of your, your Illinois life and a lot of younger people getting pregnant and stuff. No, that was so we moved like pretty much every two years of my life. So that was in Colorado at the time. We lived in this teeny tiny little hick town and there was nothing to do. There's nothing to do. So Except smoke weed there, huh? I don't even know if they smoke weed. <laughs> I know that they, they, I know that they drank a lot. I know girls got pregnant. I know there was nothing to do there. Cow pushing. I mean, running through the cornfields. I mean, it was like, there was nothing to do. And so my brother already had gotten in tons of trouble. Yeah. Did he get involved with crime? It doesn't sound like you did, but did he like do anything? He definitely got in trouble and he definitely found himself not in some good spots. And so they decided for my brother, let's get him out of here, send him off to boarding school. Um, and it was a religious boarding school so that I think they felt, again, look at, compare the two environments, a religious boarding school versus this town where you're having all these problems and issues. And I would come home every day arguing and fighting and being angry at everything that was going on, just being a teenager, my brother questioning everything in like religion and whatnot. And so I think they thought, well, it's just better if we just send her off too, so she can, you know, get religious like instruction and then they just had only my younger half-brother to focus on, which was easy because he was so little. How did you feel in school? Was it an environment you hated? Did you do well in school? Or could you describe a little bit about that? The very first day that they dropped me off, <laughs> as soon as they were out of uh, hearing distance, the words that I said was, I am free. And what I meant by that was, I am free from them. I was so happy to be away from them. I was ecstatic. I didn't care for the religious conformity, but it didn't matter to me. I would I would play along by all those rules, but it would it my being away from them meant more to me and being happier than it did to stay there with them and feel like I was living on, you know, in their, my own little form of like mental prison going away you, you were actually better uh going to boarding school it seems like i was i just it was all of a sudden just like i needed to learn how to take care of myself more independently than i had before uh, which i was fine with i i feel like i've always been a very independent person um and i needed to just keep up my grades and do my thing and i didn't have anybody telling me like in a par parental way you know, what to do, this and that, feeling like I was being under the microscope. And it was very different. And I felt such, I felt so much more freedom, which I loved, but I still miss my mother. 
it, I still had this longing, like I really still miss my mom. Yeah. So I guess I want to, I'm just curious about your brother. So when you went to live with your mom at 17, was he already old enough to live on his own or? Yeah. My brother, as soon as he could, he was gone. He was so over all three of my parents because my mother hadn't remarried at the time. <laughs> he was over all three of my parents. He was angry at having to be subjected to the same religious indoctrinations that I was. And he basically just was like, see you later. How is he doing actually now? Has he found a way to find peace with the, all that chaos in the house? Or could you explain a little bit about that? Um, You know, my brother, I feel like he has been so emotionally scarred through the adoption experiences you know of course he has his own story um everything that he went through with my parents and the religious parts of it and he and my stepmom just again it was like they never ever liked each other and i feel like because of that accumulation of everything he really internalized all those experiences in a way that he has no contact whatsoever today with my parents he has cut them off completely. Um, I will get a, occasional text messages from him every now and then, but they're pretty rare. And I know when we when I've tried to talk to him about things, he's still so angry and hurting. And I it makes me it make it, hurt, it hurts me to see my brother this way because I know that he's such he has such incredible like potential and. He's such a good person and, you know, I love, I love my brother and I, 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 it makes me sad because I know he's not happy in his life and he doesn't, I understand for a lot of reasons why he's chosen to cut off his relationship with my parents. And I'm very thankful that he has not cut me out of his life, even though our communication is so far and few between. Do you have any idea if he's married or with kids or? Oh, you have no idea. Okay. No, he, he isn't married and he does not have any kids either. He's unfortunately like for him, he's not ever been able to have a consistent, uh, like a consistent long-term relationship. How old is he actually? Um, so he's going to be, he's 47 right now. Holy cow. And it, it's kind of interesting that an older person still is unable to, to kind of let go of these emotions and unable to talk about it. Uh, it's kind of interesting. You guys grew up in the same environment, but he seemed to, where you, you kind of just, you probably had your bad days, but you kind of have an okay relationship with him. He's just like gone basically. And I kind of noticed that with some Korean adoptees, they just, has he been involved like with unhealthy behaviors like drugs to, or crime? Yeah, he definitely um, had a lot of, there were some scary times growing up with my brother um, where I wouldn't know where he would be. Um, like he'd run away and we didn't know, like, is he alive? Is he dead? Is he okay? Um, definitely drug and alcohol um, abuse, you know, was a part of his life. And that was really hard because I would worry about him a lot. And there was really nothing that I could do for him about that, changing that behavior for him. Did you feel responsible? And did you like had to go to a lot of his uh, appointments in the past or? you kind of had of a separate relationship from him. 
I felt responsible. Like I was supposed to figure out how to help him and how to save him and how to make his life better and bring some joy into his life and, and stability and love. Um, and then as I learned more about like what it is to be, you know, codependent or to be an enabler, um, I realized that that's kind of what I was doing for him with some of the things I was trying to help him with. And that was not actually helping him. And so I had to learn in particular, once I had my own family, like this is my family that I need to really focus on. And I cannot help my brother. Like if I send my brother money, that's not necessarily going to help him. Because he might be using that for drugs, correct? Exactly. Or something that just wasn't going to help him. And, you know, but I can tell him, I'm, I love you and I'm here for you. And if you need to call, you can call. And I want you to know I'm here for you. Um, that I can do. But I cannot be his, I, could, I know I could not be his solo emotional support system, you know, like, Therapy is an option that, you know, we talked about and I was asking. And let me guess, he doesn't want to go to it. He, I think he did oh, okay. um, seek out some, but I don't really know how helpful that was because he's carried so much anger for so long. And I personally, like I have, um, when I decided I really needed to seek out therapy myself, particularly with the issues around my mother, because I was so angry and that that was not something that I was going to fix myself or look to my husband to help me fix. That was not his job. Um, so for me, I feel like when I found um, a wonderful adoption, competent therapist, that was really helpful because that person could hear me and understand me in a way that I don't think a regular therapist could. Not to say that regular therapists aren't wonderful, um, but it's just very different. And I, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if my brother would be open to working with an adoption competent, competent therapist, but I think that's a step in the right direction. If that's something that he was open to. My curiosity, since you had this kind of this longing for your, your adoptive mom, did that translate into a longing for your bio mom, even though you didn't know? I don't know. What is your adoption story, by the way, just to sum that up, because I'm not sure if you may or may not have this feeling towards your birth mom and maybe how that's affecting you in the past or today or even in the future. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, as far as my story, it's I don't have a whole lot of information. Um, my birth mother, um, what they know is that I was in a like a foster care home. I had a nurse uh, who looked over like all of the, the babies there. And uh, I was adopted uh, at six months old. So I was still pretty young, pretty little. And when I came, my mom said that um, I was pretty, I was still pretty malnourished. Like I, my nutrition, like the record stated I was a healthy birth weight and some of the basic, but obviously no there was no paternal names or anything like that. Um, I was adopted through a, it's called, I think it was called the David Livingston Foundation, but I don't even think they exist anymore. This um, private adoption um, foundation. Um, so there really is not a lot of information on me whatsoever. 
And if I did decide to search, I'd have to do probably some pretty serious digging because again, like that foundation doesn't exist. And I don't even know like where this um, foster home was. It just says that I was born in Seoul. Do you know what your Korean name uh, was given to? Yes, I do. Actually, it it was Lee Hung Yung. Is this not knowing your past? Does it affect some of the things that you feel today, or is it something that you're kind of less focused on now that you have a you're married and have kids? Could you explain a little bit about that? I think there have been times in my life. I know there've been times in my life where I've stopped to wonder. I wonder what my birth parents who they are. I wonder if I have any bio brothers and sisters. I wonder what my medical history is. You know, those questions have come up for me in my life, but I have not had this like strong desire to find those answers. Um, I did go, I did have an experience. Oh my goodness. I went to the AKASF, also known as in San Francisco, Korean gathering. I remember you said you cried for some reason. Oh my gosh. The Korean adoptee, that, that gathering was probably one of the most like emotionally powerful experiences, experiences I've had as an adoptee up until that point. I never really talked to or met a lot of other Korean adoptees like ever. And I knew what my own personal experiences were growing up, but I had no one to compare that to or relate with me and say, oh, that was my experience too. So when I went to this Korean adoptee gathering in San Francisco, I met so many people whose stories I listened to that were really almost a mirror or echo of what I had experienced. And that was so powerful for me because I all of a sudden recognized like I'm not alone and I was never alone. I just never knew anybody that had had those same experiences. Even my brother and I, we never hardly ever, ever talked about it. Like ever. He just wasn't interested. And so when I met all these other adoptees, it was so like fascinating and interesting. And then listening to the stories of other adoptees going to Korea and sharing their experiences about looking for their bio mother or, or father and what that had been, it it opened up something inside of me that I didn't, I had kept closed for so long, like that need, that interest to go even look for my bio family in Korea. And I listened to those stories and I cried and I cried. And there was a, um, a man who, um, I, I can't remember, but anyway, he is a police or detective and he actually was privately, you know, helping Korean adoptees find their biological families because he wanted to help them be reunited because there's such shame around like what Korea has done to the adoptees. These, you know, all these babies that were, you know, adopted. And I listened to him, there was a translator and I listened to him speak in Korean and I just started crying again. Some, I, the sounds, the Korean sounds, it just, it was so, something about it just like struck home in my heart and it was very soothing. And I listened and I cried, even though I didn't understand what he was saying in Korean, but I listened to the English translation. Um, and I walked away from that experience. That was like, I think in 2018. And it, it 
gave me something to reflect on. It gave me a gift of connecting to other Korean adoptees. That's when I started looking for other Korean adoptees in on like Facebook groups. I didn't even know like that existed. And it gave me a sense of belonging to, to finally be belonging to a community and a place that was not just like my home, you know, with my own family. And it also opened up a part of me that kind of thought, I'm, I think I might want to go to Korea someday. And I do think I might want to actually start inquiring. And I haven't done it yet, but it is in the back of my mind now. Whereas before it never was, it was like, oh, I don't know, maybe we'll see. Easy come, easy go. I don't know. In fact, my mother, my senior year in high school, she wanted to gift me for my senior graduation gift, a trip to Korea. And you said no or something or I was so, I mean, so stupid. I was so caught up in my rebellious, angry, I'm angst. Like I was so in like in this other crazy phase in my life that I was like, I don't know, mom, I'm not sure if I'm going to do that. And she's like, look, all you have to do is fill out the application and I'll pay for it. And I was like, eh. I don't know, mom, that, that doesn't really interest me. And I'm kicking myself now because that would have been like a really good opportunity, but clearly emotionally, like I was not ready for that. I think a lot of Korean adoptees are actually kind of like that, where they don't, they kind of brush the, their culture and, and history aside until much later in life until they could process it. It seems like, yeah. which seems pretty relevant to you because you said you kind of got interested into a Korean group in California 2018 which is pretty recent did all that time before did you spend wondering or you just didn't have the time or it just didn't occur to you or what was the reason it didn't you know like I said I occasionally thought about it but then it was like kind of just a passing thought you know like they come in like eh, 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 I wonder maybe I don't know and then it would just move on was there something in particular that made you say aha I want to go to this group and I had started to feel the, you know, the whole adoptee coming out of the fog experience. I started to really reflect on a lot of my relationship choices. That's what I was wondering. Could you explain a little bit about your relationships? It sounds like you are able to make it work by being married and stuff, but were your relationships difficult uh, having a family that's kind of chaotic? And also your adoption, did it kind of creep into your relationships and dating experiences in the past? Oh, yeah, it definitely did. I feel like by the time I was even interested in dating, you know, like as a teenager, my sense of self-worth was like horrible. I had no confidence. I thought I was like, I didn't like the face that looked back in the mirror. I was almost in a way like a shame because I felt like, oh, I'm so, you know, culturally I'm so white, but, you know, externally I don't look like that. I didn't like my hair. I didn't like my eyes. I had very low self-esteem and I didn't feel like I was worthy of being treated well and being respected. And so the relationships that I chose were like, really bad relationships. I mean, nobody physically abused me, but I mean, I knew enough that that was not okay, but you know, emotionally and mentally, I did not choose very healthy people to hang out with. And, you know, it was just kind of like, oh, these are, you know, I'm sort of like, okay, but I'm not really good enough to, to really 
think I'm good enough to, to deserve more or to have like love or to really be treated well. You know, it was, it was really not healthy choices. Since you had such low self-esteem, did you end up participating in like self-harm or did you struggle with eating disorders or anything like that? Or I, um, well, I ended up, um, doing some drugs and, um, yeah, I ended up doing that. And, and as a way to kind of like numb a lot of my pain, it sounds like it wasn't a very long lasting thing though. You don't seem like that type of person to me. (laughs) I would, I would say my dark period was probably like it kicked in right around the time I decided to move back in with my mom, my senior year in high school, which were like 17 to 18. What kind of drugs did you end up doing? If you don't mind sharing. Um, it I mean, definitely it was like a lot of marijuana, um, you know, acid mushrooms, you know, I tried to like stay away from like the super hard stuff because I knew like of the addictive properties. My brother did a lot more of the harder stuff and I knew that and I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to try it. I was too scared. Um, and, you know, and I, and I drank a lot too, you know, it was like, I thought, oh, well that's, that's easy to get. And I can just drink a lot and, you know, it'll erase all the stuff I don't want to think about or feel. How long did this period was, of your drug behaviors uh, go for? How, what age? I would say, I would definitely say it was probably a couple of years. years. Did you had to go through any rehab at all? Or was it something that you just woke up and say, I just don't want to do this anymore could you uh what actually kind of triggered that actually why didn't you just choose the because i know some cads that kind of stuck in that situation maybe your brother's actually still in that situation i don't know but it sounds like you were able to kind of distance yourself from that and i'm kind of interested in that i hated how i felt every day i hated how my my life felt i felt like every day i was like in this black hole where i hated myself i hated my life I thought about dying, but I never did anything to do to attempt suicide, but I thought about it. And it was like, I realized, is this how I want to feel for the rest of my life? Do I want to wake up every day feeling like I live in this darkness? And is this really how I want to see myself? Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even look people in their eyes. I was so, so down on myself. It was so uncomfortable for me to, to feel like, I was this capable, strong, you know, good person who could love herself and see herself as a beautiful person. I mean, that was like the farthest truth from my head, but I knew I saw other people and how they carried themselves. And I watched other people as how they treated themselves. And I thought, how do they do that? How, how is it that they, they really treat themselves with love and respect And clearly they don't feel, I don't think they feel like how I feel every day. And I realized if I don't do something about this, no one's going to save me. No one's going to, no one's going to give me some magic pill and I'm going to swallow it and I'm going to be fine. I have to do something and I don't know how to do this and I don't know what to do, but I have to do something because I don't want to feel like this every day. I don't want to hate myself every day. I don't want to live like in this constant state of darkness where I'm just trying to go through the motions, but literally just not feel my anger, my pain, my injustice of, you know, all the anger I had for my dad and my stepmom at that time. 
growing up and clearly I had anger for my mom, but I didn't really know that at the time, you know, a brother who was on and off around and just feeling like just really bad. Were you ever officially diagnosed with a mental illness like depression or anxiety, or is it just kind of a self-observation that maybe you just were under the radar at times and I would, yeah, I was never officially diagnosed, but I mean, I definitely looking back, I mean, I definitely think I had a lot of depression going on. I studied um, in college. I chose to be a, an art minor and a French major because uh, those are like the things that interested me. And when I look back on my art, my art was literally like therapy for me. My art helped me process so much of my internal emotions and what was going on for me. It was in my drawings. It was in what I painted. It was in the work that I did and I created. And I honestly feel like that helped me so much without even knowing it, that I was doing therapy every day (laughs) through my art to really express or just help me kind of filter out the things that I needed to filter out. So when did you start seeing your the this adoption specialist therapist? Uh, what, what, how old were you? Was this recent or? Yeah, it was actually pretty recent. Um, it was like around 2018. I had, like I said, kind of started coming out of the fog and recognizing how my adoption had impacted my choices, my relationships, just a lot of aspects of my life. And when I went to the AKASF, it just kind of like was this whole snowball effect of how I was feeling. And I started thinking about like, do I need extra support? Do I need something more? Because I don't know what to do with all these feelings that I'm feeling. And um, it was around that time. I was also going through a lot of stuff at work. I worked for a woman for like, gosh, I think it was like 15 or 16 years. And she had definitely been a mother figure to me in many ways, but um, our relationship ended up very badly. And I was so angry as well, because I felt like there was this whole snowball effect of what was happening in my life. It was like this, this perfect storm that was all building. And I kind of just, I was, I was just spewing anger all the time and all these emotions, I would be crying or I'd be angry. And my husband, and here I am, I've I've got these two girls that need their mother and I was not being emotionally present for them. And my husband was like, look, I know you're going through something and I don't know how to help you, but you have to do something. And I said, you know what? I'm, you're right. And I'm sorry because I don't know what to do for myself right now. And you can't help me. And I know that, and it's not your job. And I feel so bad because of how I'm not being present for my daughters and I don't know what to do. And he said, why don't you like, what about therapy? And I said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I just don't know like who to find. I don't know who can help me. So I actually ended up, um, I'm in another adoptee uh, Facebook group and I, I'm pretty sure it was there that I asked the question, like, does anyone know of a good adoption therapist? Because I didn't know where to start looking or how to. And this person's uh, name was offered up. And so I contacted her and I'll tell you what, it was so 
comforting to be able to talk to somebody who I felt like just understood from the moment I started speaking and listened to me with compassion, but wasn't trying to fix me, wasn't saying, oh, well, okay, so here's what you're going to do. You know, she was amazing. And I was like, this is good for me. (laughs) I need to continue doing this. This is what I need right now. And that was very helpful. So what makes a little different uh, versus a normal therapist versus an adoption therapist? They seem to be more understanding. Could you explain some of the the skills or maybe the things that you talked about? I, I mean, you know, obviously therapy is not my field, but I do feel like if you as an adoptee decide like, I want to be a therapist and I want to help the adoptee community, you already have this, I think, understanding that's just there, what it is to be an adoptee, possibly the challenges you have faced around rejection, around abandonment, around anger, around sadness, around trauma, all of that, like you yourself have experienced this, I would imagine. And so just those basic, very deep qualifications alone, I feel like that in itself is kind of, at least for me, that was what I needed. And regular therapy, I'm sure that there are therapists that could certainly be wonderfully supportive. And I think like anything, you have to find like the person that's right for you. But this particular person, she, it felt very easy to talk to and talk about from the get-go. This is why I'm angry. I'm I'm angry because my mother is essentially, I internalized her, you know, rejecting and abandoning me when I was eight years old. I'm angry about that. And that's still probably connected somewhere in my psyche to my own birth mother rejecting and abandoning me, even though I don't know the story behind it. You know, so for me, having that adoption competent therapist really worked because I didn't have to like explain and explain, oh, well, why is that? And oh, tell me, tell me, tell me more about that, you know, your birth story. I, I didn't really need to do any of that. But Again, like I think that finding just the right person, the right therapist who you really connect with is really important. And it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's, you know, adoptee specific. So it sounds like you actually have a pretty healthy mindset for boundaries. I was curious with your brother uh, having a history of of drug addiction, are you comfortable having him around your your children at all? Or is it something that you prefer to keep separate? Um, well, he isn't really in a position to visit anyway. I mean, he really has isolated himself. Uh, so that's not even really something on my radar. Um, it's interesting, though, that you say as far as boundaries go, I have had to learn how to be very boundary specific with like my stepmother and my father. Not so much my father, but it's really more my stepmother. And I've had to learn to speak up for myself and for my children and say, you know, I'm okay with this, but I'm not okay with that, you know, and I know that they love my children. Like there's no tomorrow. I don't, I don't ever question that and wonder about that. You know, if there was anything for me to wonder about it, do they love them? No way. But when it comes to how I choose to raise my family, the things that we talk about, the things that I'm okay with as far as how they want to be in relationship with me or my kids, 
I do have to be mindful of that. And I do have to, if, if I need to place a boundary, that's something that I've learned how to do. And I'm continuing to learn because putting boundaries up is not easy all the time. People get very offended. People get very ticked off at you. Like, oh, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You know, and my mental health and well-being and the peace of that and protecting that and my own family is my number one priority. You know, I don't want to mess around with that. I grew up with too much stuff that messed things up for so long that now I am no longer willing to put up sacrifice, second guess, no way. I know what I need to like protect and I know how I want things to be for myself and for my family. You mentioned that you've kind of had this, uh, that maybe because of your experience that you were experienced uh, like around 2018, do you feel that? This has creeped up on how you raise your children because you mentioned something that you're not being present for them. Has that changed? And do they also have issues suffering from identity crisis or your relationship with you? Is there a struggle there or has things actually changed? Um, I think that when I was going through that really hard time of coming out of the fog and the perfect storm of leaving my job and um, understanding the impact of my adoption, that was a very absent, I was not at my best as a, as a mother. I know that. But I also feel like by being proactive in taking care of my mental health and well-being, because I knew I did not want to be like that for my daughters and my husband, that also showed them, you know, that, I was taking steps to take care of myself so that I could also then be like the kind of person I wanted to be for them. I don't think that my children feel, you know, it's so interesting because of the way I was raised. I feel like that has actually allowed me to be a better parent in ways that perhaps somebody else could not understand because I felt like such a second-class citizen in my family and there was such imbalance of treatment and how we were treated, I am so on the other side of the spectrum making sure that my daughters are equally treated all the time because I felt like I did not have a lot of emotional support and backing from my parents. I parent in a way to be super emotionally, at least I try, present and available to my daughters. And let's talk about all the things. What are you angry about? What are you upset about? What are you happy about? Like, I want to be the kind of parent essentially that I feel like I, I missed out on that I didn't get. And so I feel like it's because of that, that I'm going to be, I hope creating long lasting, stronger relationships with my daughters because once they're gone off to college, I hope that they'll want to still come around and, you know, have conversations with us and spend time with us. But I don't know that, you know, and I look at my father who's 76, 77 years old, and he has three children. And out of the three of us, I'm the one that probably gives him the most like emotional connection. I try with my father. I try to, you know, talking to him and spending time with him in the ways that I can when we're visiting. But, you know, my older brother has no contact with him and my younger brother, he definitely, I know he loves my dad, but he's pretty 
emotionally removed from my father as well. So it's kind of interesting because I thought he was like the baby one that's given all the attention, but it sounds like he has his own possible issues too. It sounds like it's going on or something. It could be. We've never talked about it again. He doesn't really open up much. He's a pretty closed off person. He has his own family. He's in the military. He has three kids. I, I know his life is very, very busy, um, but he's not super close to my dad and he's not super close to his mother, my stepmother, who literally the sun and the moon and the stars still rise and set and fall around him. You know, he can do no wrong. And I think, gosh, you know, <laughs> what a tragedy to have treated your son like a prince. And now he doesn't have a close relationship and nor does he want to, you know, and I see that. And I think that's not the kind of relationship I want to have with my kids. And I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that my girls feel supported by me emotionally. They feel like I hear them, that they can trust me, that we can have hard conversations. We can also have good conversations, you know, that I want them to be their own people, their own independent person. I have no need to have them conform and be these perfect, you know, Christian people. I don't even, you know, I don't participate anymore in religion. That's not, that's so you're not religious. You kind of set that aside then. I, as soon as I left that boarding school, I, that was it. I was done, 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 done. I consider myself a very spiritual person. Like I, I'm very spiritual, but I, religion for me is, was such a horrible experience that I will not go back to that. I was kind of curious. So since you moved around a lot and you're like in boarding school, were they pr primarily white people or were you around a lot of uh, cultural diversity or? Yeah, it was. All the schools I attended except for like my early, like kindergarten, first grade and third, fourth and fifth grade in Illinois, where we lived, there was a pretty good amount of cultural diversity. But after that, it was all like Caucasian. There was occasionally an Asian student, which was weird because I'd be like, huh, there's an Asian student. And like, I guess. And then then I remember, oh, yeah, you look Asian, too. You know, even though you don't like ethnically like act Asian, like a Korean family or anything like that. But yeah, mostly it was just Caucasian kids that I was around. Was around. So you said you went to university. Did you end up finishing college? Or I did. I did. Did you have an exploration with Korean culture or Asian culture there or even like students or not really in, in that area? I met some wonderful people who were in the art department that were Asian. And that was probably like my only Asian connection at that time in college. They were just some gifted artists that I loved looking at their art and asking questions about their art. And they were so like studious and very, they felt wise to me, like with how they explored their art. But as far as like an Asian group or anything, I didn't have, I didn't have that in college. So you didn't feel like you fit in. Did they have a lot of Asian students there or no? Not really. Not so much. And, you know, that's another thing I think a lot of us Korean adoptees can relate to that the whole fitting in and where do we belong, especially when you don't grow up with a lot of like a strong Asian community around you or other adoptees or have those racial mirrors. I felt very much an outsider for forever, really forever. And I kind of got used to it over time. But it wasn't until I moved to California where I saw all these Asians there because the Bay Area, you know, San Francisco Bay Area is like, there's so many Asians from so many different countries there. 
and I was shocked. I saw them, and the first thought in my head was, what are all these Asian people doing here? <laughs> like, where did they come from? <laughs> it, it was, like, shocking to me. I didn't know there were so many Asian people. It, it's a really culturally diverse area. That's why I was kind of surprised that you moved out of there. But when you were living there, did you feel like you kind of belong there with there being Asians? Did you identify more as an Asian or did you feel like yourself that you're kind of still Caucasian in your mind? That's exactly it. Even though I was still among all these Asian people, I felt like such an outsider still. I still felt like I didn't belong because I couldn't speak Korean. I don't speak Korean. I, I didn't know anything about the Korean culture. And, you know, it was the very few Koreans I met, it was like, it was weird. It was awkward. And and then I had like Chinese friends, Japanese friends, and that's not my ethnic, again, like cultural, you know, relationship there. So it was weird. It was like, I was a part of the majority community. And yet I totally didn't feel like I fit in there either. I felt very much Caucasian still inside. And it was like, what's going on? I still don't feel like I fit in. Has your kids ever talked to you about their identity? Do they display some interest in the Korean culture or not really? Or are they half white, half Korean? Or Where's your husband from? I know Latino mix. Yes, he's from El Salvador. So do they identify with Spanish? Or do they identify with Korean or both? Or So because my husband's family, who's just a massive amount of family there in the Bay Area... You know, they really had so much more of the Salvadorian culture that they grew up with because of his family. So, you know, cultural traditions, cultural food, the language. I mean, my, my oldest, she grew up, her first language is actually Spanish. Oh, right. And since I didn't really have a lot that I felt like I offered by way of their Korean heritage, partially because I wasn't interested in it, like I didn't really know what to share with them because I didn't really have a reference point. They really were much more American and Salvadorian. When they went in our community where we lived, the majority of the people there are Asian and Hispanic. So where we lived, we pretty much like blended right in with our community there. And when they went to school, so they were at a private school that was primarily, I mean... There is other kids from other countries, but I would say it's primarily Caucasian. When we switched them over to our local public school, they, which again, primarily Hispanic and Asian, I asked my daughter on the first day, how was your first day at school? And she laughed and she said, mommy, there's so many like Hispanic and Asian kids there. And it kind of made me laugh a little bit because I was telling her, Leilani, you know, but look at your family. Your mom's Korean. Your dad's from El Salvador. So you kind of like fit right in. And she said, people think I'm Filipino. And I said, yeah, I could see that. But now that we moved here to Florida, there are not a lot of Asian kids in her school. I think she's seen like a couple. And there's not as many Hispanic kids either. But, you know, it's a new experience for her. And she's getting an opportunity to really kind of, you know, kind of find her own way now. So it's kind of interesting. So you moved from California, which probably was a lot of Korean, a lot of culturally diverse uh, people. Uh, how is Florida? You said it's not as culturally diverse. That there's probably a lot of, 
remember going there's i would say there's a lot of latino people there uh certainly when you get to like by miami and disney like orlando area yes there's a very large hispanic community there um but where we are like an hour from tampa there's some cultural diversity but not as much it's definitely a much more caucasian and you know more retirees it is what it is we're just gonna you know enjoy we have some really wonderful neighbors and we're just you know making friends and kind of finding our way through stuff still how old are your kids nine and 12. Oh, so they're still pretty young, not quite teenagers. How, how is the COVID actually affecting the education with you and your kids? Has it been difficult? We were doing the distance learning, the online learning for like six and a half months because we had a summer break in between. That was hard. That was really, really hard. I am not naturally a teacher, but I tried my best and, you know, we got through it. When we came to Florida, we had the option to continue e-learning or to have them actually go to in-person school. So when we first moved, we thought, we're not too sure what the numbers are. Let's see. Let's just continue e-learning. But as of January, my daughters are both back in in in-person learning and it's good. So COVID here in Florida is basically like, what COVID? <laughs> I think you guys already got the vaccine before everyone else. Am I correct? There's definitely the vaccine is out for sure. Not for everybody. It's still oh. like 65 and older. Okay. But as far as like how the state has operated, when we came from California, which was super locked down, when we got to Florida, we were like, um, you mean the stores are open? You mean you can eat in a restaurant? You mean there's businesses still open? Like what's happening here? And people were masking or not masking. It was such an opposite experience because everything felt open here. And it really is almost like pretty much open. There are some restrictions, but not like hardly any compared to California at that time. So here we feel like we're almost kind of back to normal, but we still have to be careful and, you know, wear our masks and not be in huge, you know, obviously like we're not going to concerts. That's not happening. We're not going to sporting events, things, movies, things like that. Have you been mainly since your mom is older, have you been worried about being around her or is it just mainly just you having a relationship with each other and avoiding like big crowds? Yeah, we definitely have seen my mom and my stepdad, but, you know, we're very careful because obviously they're the older population. You know, we wear masks inside in their home and, you know, we're very cautious for their health and well-being. Did they get their first shot yet? Because our dad and mom did. So I was just curious. Oh, that's great. Um, They're supposed to get it. They think in like two to three weeks. Oh, Oh, I see. But they actually haven't gotten it yet. I know. Okay, so we like to promote kind of other people's or CADs or adoptees. They interview each kind of businesses, side projects, passions. And I know you have your own Facebook group that you started. Uh, could you remind me? I think it's Adoptees for Healing. Yes, Adoptees for Healing. Could you explain a little bit about that group and what you plan doing with that group? Yes, thank you for asking. So I wanted, when I looked on my own personal journey of where I was in my life and how angry I was and how much of my own personal feelings of trauma that I felt like I had experienced as an adoptee and all the repercussions of growing up with my parents. I feel like from that experience to where I am now, which I'm so grateful for, I have been given this opportunity to really, for lack of a better explanation, really be a place of support and light, you know, for others. And so when I started to think about 
what do I want to do? What's meaningful for me? I wanted to do something where I'm still connected to the adoptee community because I feel like our stories, what we've gone through, you know, good and not good, we really have each other to rely on, to listen to, to support one another. And so it was really important for me that I wanted to create a very safe space and community for other adoptees that were also interested in, like, I'm interested in healing, but what does that even look like? You know, what does that mean for me? And healing is a very personal term and personal experience and personal journey for everybody. And for me personally, I feel like my healing process has been a ton of my own proactive like choices that I've made and responsibilities that I said, I know I need to do more for myself and I want to do better and I want to live a life that I don't hate. And so my healing journey has definitely been happening and it's still happening and it will still continue to happen. And so I wanted to create a space for other adoptees where we could talk about these things and also support one another. And so for me, um, that's why I created the group. And I'm very grateful to have, you know, people in there who want to be in there. And I thought that because healing looks like very different for everybody, I wanted to kind of put like a, an emphasis on something every month that would give the us as adoptees an opportunity to explore it if we wanted to. I understand not everybody wants to. So for example, last month of January, um, I found in that very dark period, I went to the gym every single day. I dragged myself there and I hated every minute of it, but I would always walk out feeling so much better. And so that was a form of movement for me, like therapy movement. And so that's what I focused in on January was movement. And now um, for February, I'm doing a theme around self-love and self-care because there's so many different ways to express that for ourselves. And when we allow ourselves to experience our own version of what self-care looks like, we're also allowing ourselves to kind of, you know, feel better. And when you feel better, you're going to do better. And so every month I've been thinking about different things I want to do, people I'd like to also interview to tell and share their stories, because I feel like that's also so healing in a way, because you can identify with someone else's story, what much like what you guys are doing, which I think is awesome. And I'd also like to have an opportunity to talk to other like people in the field who are actually healers and therapists and bring them on as well to see if they would be willing to kind of talk and explore a little bit more in depth with their own specialty. I'm definitely not a therapist. I have a health and wellness coaching certification. Oh, so you actually do have a certification then? Yeah. It was a, another low point in my life where I was like, I need something more in my life. What do I need here? I'm so dissatisfied. I Do you consider yourself a life coach then? Oh, is that what that certification is? Or so, um, Health and wellness is a little bit different. It's, it's also focusing a little bit more on like the nutritional, but people who are interested in like they're changing like things for their body, um, which does affect your mental health as well. So it's, it touched on life coaching, but it was a little bit more on the other side of like taking care of your body. Right. So when I decided I, I need something more health and wellness coaching kind of found me at perfect timing. So I pursued that certification. It was a wonderful experience. Um, and since then, I just dove into this whole world of personal growth and development where I'm constantly looking to 
learned? How can I grow? How can I help myself? And ultimately, like, I would love to be able to help other people with the things that I have learned. But of course, I recognize that's a very personal decision for people who even are interested in, you know, things like self-love and self-care. And are you an introvert at all? Or I was just curious, has the COVID affected your mental health and why you've been unhappy? Or was it just before this? Oh, it was before. (laughs) It was before. Uh, And I would say I'm an introvert most days, but when I am like out in the world, I I can totally switch that to be an extrovert if that's the right thing to happen. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot of like CAD podcasts out there, but the difference between colonize the video in particular, but we also want to emphasize mental health, which you kind of touch base on here, which is really good. So my question to you, why is mental health important? Do you have any advice for other people that might be struggling right now? And three, any last word of advice you want to tell? The kind audience? of for like people that are experiencing what you're experiencing, maybe you recommend a adoption therapist or, or something like that. Definitely. Um, Okay, I'll try to remember. If I forget, please prompt me again. Um, So as far as why is mental health important, I personally just feel like from my own life experiences, if my mental health was in such a dark place and dark state for so long, um, and that did not allow me to feel like I was able to really fully not only live, but just love the person I am. And I feel like if we're not in a place where we truly like love and accept ourselves and feel good in our skin and feel good in our minds, mind, body, and spirit, it's kind of, for me, all connected. If we don't have that place, then it just, to me, I felt like I was just sad and I was angry and I didn't want to live like that. To me, that wasn't living. Mental health for me is like the number one priority. I feel like what it should be so that we can feel good about our life and it allows us to open up other spaces in ourselves as far as where we want to go and you never know what other avenues you know will open up for you as well once you start exploring other areas of healing for yourself my second question was do you have any advice for people that might be having similar experience to what you had or difficulties i guess when i think about this question i know that you have to do set a certain boundary but I know there's a lot of Korean adoptees that are continuing to be lost in the fog and continuing doing uh, not as good behaviors, like self-destructive behaviors. Like, for instance, I guess I wanted to ask you if you could say one thing to your brother, what kind of advice would you give to him so he actually could live a happier life like you are trying to do? And if there could be something that you could say to him. I mean, I feel like it's such a personal choice to even want to go down that road of why I understand why I'm so angry, but do I want to do something about it? I understand partially why I feel so traumatized in my life and why I make the decisions I do, but am I willing to go down the road of actually like finding tools that can help me to not be in this state of mind? So I think The first step is really to be honest with yourself and transparent and say, I either am okay with the way things are or I'm not. And if I'm not okay, what am I willing to do about that? Because I do know there's a lot of anger around our adoption stories and experiences, and I don't condone what's happened 
certainly with my own experiences, I don't just pretend like, poof, that never happened. And I know for other adoptees, they've had some horrible experiences. And it's not like we just say, oh, all is forgiven and it's fine. And I'll just, you know, I'll pretend like it didn't happen or, you know, I'll never, ever forget it didn't happen. And therefore I'll, I'll stay in this place of really hurt and pain and anger. And I know for some adoptees, it's very hard to move past that. And I know for others, they have been able to, and they found the right tools that worked for them. So, you know, if it was my brother, I would just ask him and say, you know, are you at all even interested in wanting to find some tools to help yourself that you recognize that you may need some other tools to live in a different state of mind than what you are experiencing every day? And I think that's where the decision has to start. There's you know, with that person. I think that's actually a uh, really good advice. So is there any other last minute things that you would like to mention or there's any things that we did not mention uh, so far? Oh, gosh. I know that as adoptees, again, we all have our own individual unique stories and experiences and I have this strong desire for, I feel like so many of our stories, there's so much sadness, there's so much pain And there's so much darkness that some of us have gone through. And there's this desire in me to help people to see their own inner light that they have, that they are, in fact, you know, just enough as they are, that they are absolutely their own unique, magnificent creation. And that even if they can't see it, it's there. And that when we hold space for one another to know that, yes, you know, their feelings are heard and they are seen and their stories, but at the same time, you know, there's so much more to a person to be able to be or to become or to in their own healing process. Like, I don't know how, if I'm even explaining this well, but basically, you know, I wish I could wave a magic wand and make everyone's like pain go away. And I know that's not possible, but I hope to be like a positive presence for someone, you know, and I'm very grateful for the members in my community and our group. And, you know, that to shine a light back on someone can help them to see the light that they have inside themselves. That's a really great statement. I was kind of curious, personally, all the work that you've been through, would you say that you're actually happier now? I definitely am happier. I have implemented my own self-care routine, self-care practices. I feel like I'm constantly seeking out, you know, learning more, pushing myself to grow in ways that may feel a little uncomfortable, but I know that it would be good for me to, to find, you know, some more tools for myself. And I feel like I'm very, very blessed and so grateful to have the life that I have today, to have my family, to know that I am fully capable of owning who I am and loving the person that I am. And I feel like it's such a gift that I have been given to really find this new path for myself. And I definitely feel very, very grateful and happy for my life today. So a common thread with most Korean adoptees is abandonment, especially with a rejection, especially with birth family and then maybe adoptive family for many people. My question to you is how did you shift the blame from your adoptive family, your mom, your adoptive mom to taking self-responsibility to 
better yourself? How, how were you able to adjust to that philosophy? The, the that, why me, I guess, mentality versus to actually taking responsibility. A lot of There's a lot of people that I feel like are kind of stuck it. in that cycle, possibly. I mean, it, it took me a long time to even want to go down that path of taking responsibility for my own healing and anger and all of that trauma. And it certainly was not an easy road. I think that it took a lot of baby steps and a lot of trying and a lot of self-compassion of, yes, I'm taking responsibility for my healing, but that doesn't mean that I have to be, do, act, behave, or condone. Um, Yes, I'm taking responsibility and I'm going to really be trying on different things to help myself and see if that's a good fit or not. Ultimately, though, really, truly, ultimately, I feel like as far as my mother's concerned and all the anger that I held on to for so many years, you know, therapy was wonderful, but it was still ultimately my internal decision to forgive my mother. I worked at forgiving her for like a good three years, like energetically speaking. It's one thing to verbally say, I forgive you, but if you don't energetically feel that and internalize it on the inside, that's just a bunch of words. I had to sit and process. And when I felt like it, because I certainly didn't feel like it every day, but once I decided, how long do I want to carry this anger for? Like, and if I decide to carry this anger towards my mom, what is this going to prevent me from experiencing in my life? Because I want a good life. I want a thriving life. I want to have a loving relationship with my daughters. And if I have so much anger towards my mother, how can I have a fully thriving life with my own daughters and relationship with them? I can't do both. And is that really worth it for me? What benefit am I getting out of that? Nothing. I was getting nothing but living in anger. That wasn't going to help me. That just continued to block me from living the kind of life and having the relationship that I wanted. And, you know, when I started reading about generational trauma and how you can carry that, that kind of terrified me a little bit because I don't want to carry my trauma and give that to my daughters and have my daughters pass that on to their daughters and so on and so forth. And I thought, okay, so I need to really energetically at a fundamental cellular level, I need to forgive my mother. And I worked at it. It didn't happen overnight, but I'll tell you what, I've forgiven my mother and I feel so much lighter. It's amazing. I feel lighter. I feel more free. I feel like there's been this huge weight that's been lifted off of me. What's the biggest skill set? Is it like positive thinking or some type of uh, distraction? What was the biggest thing that allowed you to finally get to the point where you say, yes, I forgive or you, maybe but the process. Mean it? Yeah, the process. Maybe the it took some time, it sounded like, too. It did. It took a lot of time. I mean, it may sound a little different for some people. Everyone has their own process. But for me, it took me to think about the experience of when I was hurt as a child and sit with that and kind of go through like, I guess, sequence of forgiveness of trying to empathize with my mother for what happened at that time to understand that she was hurting, that she did not intentionally mean to tear apart our family, 
that in fact, she thought she was doing the best thing. It took that for me to really put myself in a position of hers to also think about how it felt to have your reach out to your mother and have your own mother say, no, I won't help you. It took me time to consider how I could forgive her. And from a emotional standpoint of giving me to my father and stepmother and then asking myself, what did I learn out of that experience? Well, for as much pain and trauma and anger that I experienced from that time, it's taught me what I absolutely do not and will not ever have with my own children. I learned from that, right? So I wouldn't call it gratitude, but I would call it, I could learn the lessons from that experience and see that as that was in a way something that I, positive that I could take from that experience. And to know that in spite of all of that, that happened, I could still love myself and not blame myself. And I could also love my mother and not blame her anymore. I was kind of curious. I know that you seem to resolve the issues with your adoptive family. Do you have any thoughts toward your birth family at all? Like maybe exercising forgiveness with them. I don't know if you have any, do you have any emotions towards that or is it something you haven't thought about? Yeah. Yeah, I really do. You know, I don't have any biological information on my birth mother or birth father, but I also believe that for whatever reasons I was adopted and however life has taken me on all these different paths and twists and turns that I am here in the here and now for a wonderful purpose. And I can look at that, my adoption experience with compassion to say, who knows why they had to make that decision, but I don't carry anger or hatred and I can actually go to a place of forgiveness for them because my other choice is to be angry and stay angry. I don't want to. I don't want to carry this anger forward with me. I'm very happy and willing to forgive my birth parents for whatever reason that was and just know that I'm here in the here and now. So let's say if you did find your birth family, if you ever did go back to Korea, would you bring your kids with or would this be a personal journey, do you think? We visited our birth family in 2018. We were pretty fortunate. We went during the Olympics. It never like came across my mind because my brother and I immediately knew we'd bring our adoptive family. But speaking to some Korean adoptees, they found it was more of a personal journey and they didn't want like their wives or husbands involved or, or kids. What would you actually think you would actually end up doing if you did have to have that choice? We were just talking about it actually like two days ago. I would like to go by myself first and then I would like to take my children. My husband, I really, I don't, I don't know if that would be a trip with him, but for sure my children, my girls, yes. That's awesome. I think you actually, you hit the nail on the head with, I know there's a lot of people kind of stuck in that negative mindset, but in the end you kind of had that ability to kind of detach and think, do I want to be unhappy? And it kind of comes from there. And in the end, being unhappy really doesn't have its benefits. And that's why you kind of made that conscious decision to kind of make changes with your life and not end up in that cycle. And it sounds like you are kind of finding peace with kind of your traumatic past and with your adoptive family. Definitely. And it's going to be an ongoing lifelong process, I feel, because we're always learning and evolving and growing. And that's what I want for myself. And 
you know, like I said, if I want this like amazing, beautiful, thriving, happy life that I believe I and everybody else deserves to have, then I can't carry into this life that I want to have and envision. I can't carry my anger and my hatred. And that doesn't mean that I'm erasing the trauma. That doesn't mean I'm erasing and pretending it didn't happen. It just means that in the here and now and how I choose to move forward in my life, that I want to carry good things forward now and not have these things that potentially could energetically block me from the kind of life I want to have. Since you didn't have like the best adoption experience, do you find yourself kind of caught up in the politics of adoption of pro-adoption or anti-adoption? Have you came across any of those groups or you kind of just, it's something that you just stay out of? Yeah, I have. And I kind of stay out of it just because I'm not comfortable. That's not a place that I feel comfortable to speak up in. But I do think that if you are looking into adoption as a parent, you should definitely be well-informed, talk to adoptees, learn, listen. You know, I think there's a lot more resources out there now versus when my parents adopted my brother and I. This is kind of a personal opinion. I'm not trying to degrade your experience or not, but we've come across adoptees that were like beaten from their adopted parents, beaten in the orphanage, sexually abused. Your story is actually not as, I wouldn't say it's less less of an issue, but there's definitely things that you've been able to work on compared to other adoptees. I felt like there's a, quite a few adoptees that just can't get along with their adoptive family, but even if you didn't have a perfect experience, it sounds like you're still able to willing to make it work, it sounds like. Yes and yes. Um, I know that my adoption experience definitely There's so many other adoptee stories that have been really horrible and it's heartbreaking to hear those stories. And I understand why an adoptee who's gone through those experiences would feel just very traumatized and have a lot of anger and a lot of pain. And as far as, like you said, my own relationship, you know, with my mother, I feel like so good that I was able to forgive her and have a relationship now because, you know, I don't know how many more years I'll have with her. And as far as my father and my stepmother, you know, I'm choosing to have the kind of relationship I want with them more out of the love that they have for their grandchildren. I know they love me. I am not at all. We're not at the same level as my mom. And that will never be the case. And I'm okay with that. That is okay with me. Yeah. But, you know, with my brother's experience, I think that's given me so much to want to be connected also because it's in a way it's my way of being connected to him because, you know, he's also adopted. He has a lot of his own demons that he fights and works probably with every day. And, you know, if he's ever in a place that he wants to reach out or to seek support or, you know, kind of explore his own healing, I want him to know that, you know, I hear him and I'm willing to really help him find the tools and resources because to me, it saddens me to no end that I don't have the relationship with my brother that I wish I had. And I understand that that's not my choice. That's his choice. I guess I I feel like you're an example of even though like me and my brother, we had a fairly okay adoption. We did argue and stuff, but in the end, it's been fairly okay. But I'm glad that we were able to share some of these uh, adoption stories where they actually still have a a relationship with their adoptive family. And 
despite everything they've been through, they're still trying to make it work. And I do think, yeah, I guess there's some places where you got to cut someone off, but it's just good to share some of these stories where they're still trying to make it work. And even though it may not be perfect, it's, it's still something to it's aim good, for, I guess. It's, it, it's good it's to share. It's good to hear yeah. that your adoption process, you've been able to heal from it because there's a lot that has been so traumatized that, I mean, we had to take in this stuff too. So from, I mean, coming from my own personal experience, it's just great that you're able to move on and live a pretty productive life because a lot of the women that we encountered had, like I said, had encountered a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of like physical abuse, issues with their adoptive family. Another one that I know of has like bipolar disorder and several people I know, but they end up losing custody of their kids because the adoptive parents decided to take care of it. So there's a lot of issues that are out there that I'm just happy to know that you're willing to at you, least you, come up. I, I guess even though it doesn't feel like it, you must have a pretty stable head on your shoulders, it seems like, even though it did take you some work to get there. And I'm really happy to share your story, and I hope more people can hopefully go to you and see you as a light, and uh, we'll be more happy to share uh, Peggy's story and many people like her and anybody that wants to reach out to her. So I guess we're going to wrap it up uh, here. Thanks a lot, Peggy. We really appreciate your story. She has been through some trials and tribulations, and she was luckily and thankfully not caught up terribly in the kind of dark route, and she was able to kind of rise above it and have a decent relationship with her adoptive family. Uh, currently, it sounds like she's still trying to figure out, waiting on things up with her birth family, and hopefully we may hear from her in the future. I think we can probably wrap it up. Is there any last minute words that you want to say, Peggy, to our listeners? Oh, I just want to say thank you guys so much for giving me the opportunity to really talk and share about my story. I was a little bit nervous to do so because it's another brave step in a way to, to go so deep and, and talk about something so personal and Thank you for your opportunity and platform to share so that we can also feel like we're heard and listened to and, and reciprocate that for other adoptees. I'm very grateful for you guys and for this opportunity. Thanks. We really appreciate it.